0: All right, podcast family, I want to know what you all do in this situation, because this happens in our practice, not infrequently, actually just happened this morning in our prenatal clinic, where patients either start their prenatal care early, and that's great, that's the goal. But then sometimes they go MIA. I mean, they're just gone. Uh, they Who knows? There are transportation issues. There's family issues. Uh, sometimes they leave the country, go visit family, and then come back. Who knows? There's a variety of reasons. But then they come back after uh, the start of the third trimester. In other words, past 28 weeks and six days. Uh, And they're like, hey, I'm back. I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad you came back at 35 or 36 weeks. Welcome. We missed you. But now here's the question. They have missed that critical interval of 24 to 28 weeks, or based on some interpretations of the guideline, 28 weeks and six days. We'll get into that in this episode. Uh, And the short of it is they've missed their diabetes screening. Remember, we said diabetes screening. So these are not frank diabetics. These are not class B, class C, pre-existing diabetics. They just kind of show up. They're like, hey, what did I miss? Uh, Like a lot of things. But here's the question. Those who miss their routine screening between 24 and 28 weeks, how do we check them for gestational diabetes in the third trimester? Or do we at all? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, the guideline is 24 to 28 weeks. Absolutely, but just as it is controversial screening earlier than that in pregnancy, like uh, late first trimester, early second trimester, the early GDM screen, which ACOG does endorse, but not everybody agrees, uh, and we've covered that many times on this uh, podcast, that, that controversy, it is also controversial what to do with these patients in the third trimester after 28 weeks and 6 days, all right? So 29 weeks and above. And and it's it's really deep, and there is data here, and there's one specific situation, one condition, where looking for GDM in the third trimester, regardless of previous screening results, may be helpful. But it's a very unique cluster of clinical presentations, so we're going to discuss that in this episode, all right? So this is what we're trying to set up here screening for GDM in the third trimester. Uh, What's the guideline? What's the value? Do we use the same values that we use like at 24 to 28 weeks? And does it actually change? Does it impact perinatal outcomes? That's the issue that we're going to tackle in this episode. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, a member FDSE. Okay, everyone, I really do try to cover things here that are clinically meaningful, that are relevant. I mean, does this happen to you? Like I said in the intro, this happened to us this morning. Like, hey, there's a lady who just started prenatal care. She was like at 35 weeks. And and we had two different opinions. Okay, so one attending, uh, and again, I, I walked into this right, but I was asked by uh, one of our MAs. So I, I've basically to be the referee, right? So one attending said, "Hey, they missed it. It's twenty four to twenty eight weeks. We'll just we'll just see how it goes, right?" And then the other said, "No, we should still screen. I mean, at least it gives us some information." So who's right? And the short answer is. They're both absolutely right. They absolutely, the patient absolutely missed the time to screen. Now, remember, ACOG states that it's between 24 and the 28th week, but some some interpret that to not be 28 and 0, but to allow for that grace of that 28th week to include 28 weeks and 6 days. And I have no problem with that. But the whole reason that this testing interval of 24 to 28 weeks was chosen, historically, we're talking about back when the trials first were done, was because that was the rise in human placental lactogen where you would now detect impaired glucose tolerance and or gestational diabetes, and of course have time, that's the catch, guys, have time to intervene either with diet or medication, traditionally insulin. Now, of course, uh, we have metformin as an option and uh, have enough time to intervene at the start of the third trimester, so at at 28 weeks and above, where it actually can change outcomes, all right? That's why it's 24 to 28 weeks. Now, screening earlier is also controversial. You've got to go back to the archives because data after data is like, yeah, hey, we, we can find it early based on risk factors and we can intervene early. The problem is it doesn't really do drastic changes for maternal outcomes or or perinatal outcomes. It really has modest improvements in, in some of those things. Not great, great wins, all right? And remember, very controversial. ACOG still says early screening can be done. Others don't agree with that. The reason that it's controversial and not everybody agrees is because, again, those wins are mild to moderate. They're not great wins. And it does increase costs. It increases stress. It increases intervention, obviously. I mean, they got to pick their finger and or get a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. uh, And and without really doing just revolutionary things for that pregnancy, okay, mild to moderate victories. Uh, But it's equally controversial screening for that later on. That's why we have times of prenatal care, right? We only check if you're going to check for maternal serum alpha fetal protein for body cavity defects as an adjuvant to a detailed anatomical screen between 18 uh, and 22 weeks. You you can only get MSAFP for body cavity defects at that time. Uh, And if you miss it, well, you just you just kind of miss it. Um, So there are things that are timed for this, right? Uh, GBS. Uh, is between 36 weeks and uh, 37 weeks and six days i mean that's just the interval that's when things are naturally done and yeah you can have a little bit of flexibility with gbs i get that we can do cell free dna at any time that's true so there are things that we can do uh pan pregnancy all throughout but other things have punctuations in time where the reference values uh are set so whether we use carpenter Cowson or the National Diabetic Data Group, those values were interpreted between 24 and 28 weeks, or the 24th through the 28th week of pregnancy, again, which some would interpret to be 28 weeks and 6 days. And if they miss it, they miss it. Now, the problem is there's no other good substitute to look for gestational diabetes in the third trimester. We know that hemoglobin A1c can lag it takes a long time for that to get a bump. Fasting glucose values are, are, are a good screen, but sometimes it can miss it. Same thing with postprandials. So we are left in this gap. That's why it's important just to emphasize to patients, look, try not to go MIA if you can because you're going to miss critical times of testing that we just can't make up for. Okay, But this does happen in our practice quite a bit. I mean, patients sometimes just show up for the first time in the third trimester. That happened yesterday. Hey, I'm 36 weeks. I'm here to get prenatal care. Fantastic. We, we welcome them with open arms. We'd rather be late than never uh, because we want them to have some access to care. And sometimes it's not even their fault, guys. They, they've moved. They haven't had insurance. They fall into a gap. They don't qualify for public assistance. Whatever. We've heard all the reasons, and they're all valid, and some are not valid. Um, but that's what we're there for. We're the safety net to take care of these patients. And yes, we have patients who first start prenatal care at 36 weeks. Sometimes (laughs) they'll come into the clinic for the first time. We're like, oh, okay. Well, like you're like 43 weeks, uh, based on your best guess. Uh, and there's no fluid around the kid. So I think we're good. I think we'll just send you to labor and delivery. That kind of stuff has happened a handful of times. They've gone from, "Hey, I'm a new patient, initial intake." Oh my goodness, you need to go straight to labor and delivery, and then delivered. How's that for prenatal care? But at least it got seen by a physician, right? By a healthcare team, uh, and, and they have they have care. Not ideal, but it is the reality that sometimes we deal with. So this issue: should we screen for GDM? In the third trimester. Remember that word screen is loaded because screening means that you're looking for something when the patients are asymptomatic. And let me just give it to you in a nutshell, even though we're gonna give you the data here in just a minute. Right now, the data says that screening for GDM, now there's otherwise fine, no other issues. Um, we can diagnose them with GDM based on second trimester reference criteria. But we don't even know if that's right. And while it increases that diagnosis of GDM, it really doesn't actually change perinatal morbidity. Nothing really changes except potentially doing more C-section. Okay? So that's one of the... It can possibly hurt with just screening. Remember, no other issues, no other clinical markers. However... There is data that if we include GDM screening in the third trimester, after 28 weeks and six days, as part of a diagnostic workup for an abnormality, that's where the positive predictive value can probably be uh, m- much more justified, and it's higher, Okay. So what are those clinical factors? Easy. What, what do you think? It, it's it's markers that we see where the child could be telling us, the pregnancy could be telling us, hey, I've got impaired glucose tolerance here in this vehicle. The vehicle being, of course, the mother, which is suspected LGA slash macrosomia, right? So the baby's 4,000 grams or more with polyhydramnios. Those are two big markers that that patient may have GDM undiagnosed. So even if she had a traditional screen at 24 to 28 weeks, and then they develop LGA slash macrosomia with polyhydramnios, that patient likely should have retesting with a diagnostic test, either the 75-gram 2-hour or preferably the 100-gram 3-hour test because there you can diagnose impaired glucose tolerance uh, as well as GDM. Okay? And the reason is, is that there, it's not a screen. There, there's clinical factors that are abnormal. There's uh, macrosomia and polyhydramnios. The reason GDM diagnosis in that particular case is important is because that can help you determine mode of delivery. Right, because if they do not have GDM, you can go up to 5,000 grams before recommending primary C-section. But if they fail, if they have a new diagnosis of GDM in the third trimester, either because they didn't get it between 24 and 28 weeks, they didn't show up in time for that test, or they possibly passed it originally, but now they have these clinical uh, uh, markers, these clinical findings. If you diagnose GDM in the third trimester, you can lower the estimated fetal weight, the headlock of when you would offer a primary section to prevent shoulder dystocia, right, which is 4,500 grams. So with that combination of suspected macrosomia and polyhydramnios, those two factors in those who missed 24 to 28 week screening or had it and it was normal, potentially that could help gauge management. But otherwise, the data show that if you're they don't have those two items, um, there really is no big point to screen after 29 weeks because likely we're not going to impact, have a time to impact enough uh, fetal growth there, right? At a paucity. Now, I get that. The devil's advocate, the rebuttal to that is, hey, I'd rather give them a diagnosis late in pregnancy than none at all because that's going to, that we can give them education that they're at risk for future diabetes. Well, if their kid's born macrosomic, Anyway, um, they're going to have that propensity just based on that birth weight because children that are born at 8 pounds, 14 ounces or more, right, 4 kilos, that patient is likely at higher risk of having GDM anyway, just based on that. So we are going to walk through the data here, and it's not a lot, right? This is a handful of data, but it does make the case that screening has more muddy benefits over part of the diagnostic evaluation of polyhydramnios or macrosomia when that diagnosis is made ultrasonographically, all right? But this this is why ACOG, this makes the point here that ACOG states that universal screening should be done between 24 and 28 weeks. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. I mean, we all get that. That's that's a no-brainer. That's an ACOG practice bulletin 190 from February 2018. Now I really wish that they gave dates because it says between 24 and 28 weeks. That's assumed most people would interpret that to be 24 and 0 all the way until uh 28 and 0. This the the 24th to the 28th week. The 28th week ends at, at 28 and 0. If you're 28 and 1, you're in the 29th week, right? Just like with decades with lifespan, right? So somebody's uh is 41, they're in their fifth decade. If somebody is 51, they are in their sixth decade, right? So technically, the 28th week ends at 28 and zero. Now, I I, I am. I'm not all that concrete. I I have a little bit of abstract thinking and critical thinking. And I I do allow 28 weeks and six. I know, I know. Technically, it's a 29th week. But but because ACOG doesn't give it a, a true uh, date breakdown, it just says universal screening between twenty four and twenty eight weeks. Um, I, I think it's fine. Right now, you you've got a whole month, guys. Twenty four and zero to twenty eight and zero. I mean, surely we can get a patient in at that time, right? You would think. But but that's why that's part of the uncertainty here. And there's something else that makes it super muddy, which is something that the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force says. And then they just leave us all to dry. It's like, hey, guys, FY, FYI. And then they'll throw this out, this bomb. you are like, well, wait, 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 what do I do with that? And they don't answer. Okay, I'm going to tell you what that is in a minute. But ACOG, I wish they would have broken it down to to the days like 24 and zero to 28 and zero like they do for steroids we have that at steroids steroids can be given at 22 weeks and zero at the earliest up to 33 weeks and six days um and, and then and that's they did they, they demarket like that but they don't really do that for gdm it's 24 to 28 weeks some have interpreted that to be 28 and zero some say well it's 28 weeks and six days even though that's the 29th week still a little bit of room in, of interpretation that's why we said in the intro, anything past that twenty nine weeks when you're already firmly are you already crossed the line into the third trimester uh, and and you're at twenty ninth week uh, is is this a value of screening for GDM versus part of the diagnostic evaluation? We're going to get into that. But I think what I want to do next, let me, let me read to you from the U.S. Preventive, Preventive Service Task Force that one statement that confuses everybody, all right? So let's do that next. I am looking at right now on my laptop the August 2021 clinician summary from the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force for Screening for Gestational Diabetes, okay? Now, before I give you this, I read you this one sentence where they just they just state this and they walk away like, all right, bye, guys, see ya, ha- have a good time, interpret that one. And like, they walk away, you know, giggling, like, hee-hee-hee, <laughs> because, wait, 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 the, the better thing would have been, well, what guideline do I, well, what are the values? Is it the same reference values as 24 to 28 weeks? Where's that data? It would have been great if they said, and here is the normal or the abnormal after that time, after the twenty eighth week or twenty nine weeks or more, because the reference values, whether it's Carpenter calcin, which is the lower numbers, or National Diabetic Data Group, uh, those were set between a certain amount of where a human placental lactogen should start to peak. That's twenty four to twenty eight weeks. So, is it the same values? What what is a normal one hour or a normal three hour? Uh, in the third trimester? We don't know. I mean, we we, we need those reference guidelines. It's look, Guys, let's make another analogy. Remember the lily graph when that was a thing, right? Where you draw amniotic fluid out, then you'd send it for the delta 450 to look for hemolysis for fetal hydropes. Now it's all minimally invasive, right? We do look at blood flow in the middle cerebral artery uh, for concerns for hydropes uh, in cases of isoimmunization. But back in the day, it was the lily curve that looked for the amount of the delta, 450, uh, the amount of pigment from broken red blood cells in the uh, amniotic fluid based on amniocentesis. Well, that only started, uh, you know, pretty much at the start of the third trimester. Well, we were like, well, crap, what happens if the baby is really affected earlier on? Well, that became the Queenin curve. So that was extrapolation based on data and based on some samples of like, hey, this is the danger zones when it's under that. So, that would be nice if we had that equivalent for GDM in the third trimester, right? We had a little nonograph, we could match it up, but we don't have that. We have the values from Carpenter Cowson and National Databetic Data Group between 24 and 28 weeks. That's whether that's 28 weeks in zero or 28 weeks in six, whatever. The point is, we know what the values are at that time span, not after. You see that similar to the Lily curve. You, you, before the Queen and Curve gave us that, that in, uh, extrapolation that was under the weeks of gestational age from Lily. You're like, I don't know. We don't have anything to interpret that. But we don't have that same kind of extrapolation for GDM. We assume it's the same numbers. That makes sense, but we don't know because the reference was set at 24 to 28 weeks. And notice, ACOG is very clear, guys. It says, scream universally for GDM between 24 and 28 earlier in certain high-risk conditions. Doesn't say anything about later on. Did you notice that? It it doesn't. It's like perfectly quiet. It's crickets. We assume they're the same, but we don't know. We don't have a reference range for that. And that's where some of the controversy comes in, okay? Because as I'm going to read you in some of the publication, we're like, oh, up to 25% in some publications, 30% of women with risk factors based on BMI, mainly being obesity, uh, can screen positive for GDM in the third trimester. But the rebuttal to that is, well, screen positive based on what reference? The cutoff for the third trimester? What is that? Oh, no, 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 the regular cutoff. Well, that wasn't based on the third trimester. That was based at 24 to 28 weeks. Uh-huh. You see, that's the difficulty there, guys. So, well, sure, they can. you'll likely get a higher number there because you've got more human placental lactogen based on placental mass. We don't know what the reference number is. So, very controversial. Um, and, and then what do you do with that, all right? Is it real GDM or is it not because we don't have a reference range of what is the normal value at that time? likely the positive predictive value is more set if there's clinical factors, guys. We've already said this, right? Suspected macrosomia. And I say suspected because it's not confirmed until the kid is weighed. And polyhydramnios; Those two things are like, man, you probably got diabetes. And I wouldn't even screen you for that. I mean, you just make the, the diagnosis of clinically, it looks like... Diabetes, um, but because it would make it, it can push that hand to offer C section with a fetal weight of forty five hundred versus five thousand without GDM. That's where screening in that clinical context would make sense, all right? But I t- we'll get into that in a minute. But I told you I wanted to read it to you. The August twenty twenty one. Clinician Summary of U.S. Preventive Service Task Force Screening for Gestational Diabetes. And here it is. It's one sentence and they just leave this alone. And this is what confuses people. It says, one-time screening can be performed at 24 weeks of gestation or after. Guys, I'm reading this directly from, from the report here. And They go on to say, quote, Typically, in the U.S., screening occurs prior to 28 weeks. However, it can occur later in persons who enter prenatal care after 28 weeks of gestation. End quote. Well, of course you can. See, I mean, yeah, sure you can. Yes, you can do screening in the, in the third trimester. But what are the values? See, it would have been nice if U.S. Preventive Service Task Force said, and the interpretation of that test, unlike at 24 to 28 weeks, has these reference values. But they don't have that because they can't, because we don't have any. Do You all get that. So at the same time, the rebuttal is, well, why do we use the same values earlier on? Because the reference is 24 to 28 weeks. So if you fail earlier on with the bar set that high, then you you might have something going on. Does that make sense? But because it's a slowly progressive increase in human potential lactogen, that's the thought. Well, if you fail early on, then that that's that's pretty uh, much seals the diagnosis. But later on, we don't know if it plateaus. We don't know if HPL causes a higher rise in free glucose as it tries to feed the growing child. We don't know that. Does that make sense? So here's that confusion. U.S. Preventive Service Task Force indeed says for sure you can do it after 28 weeks if the patient presents at that time. But ACOG doesn't. Guys, How This isn't controversial at all, right? We know medicine, we don't always agree. Just look at breast cancer screening. American Cancer Society, Susan G. Komen, National Comprehensive Cancer Network, uh, ACOG, and the Society of of Breast Surgeons don't always agree uh, on certain recommendations. And we've covered that topic many times in the past as well. So if somebody ever asks you, who actually has a statement on screening in the third trimester, well, it's the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, though they leave uh, no description of, of what we should use as a reference for normal. I found a publication from 2010. It's out of Elsevier. The journal is Diabetes and Metabolism, and that's a pretty reputable journal. The title is When Should Screening Be Performed for Gestational Diabetes? Perfect. I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about. This is through Science Direct um, and Elsevier, uh, uh, Mason, France. Th- th- these were all different uh, parts of the publishing team that put this together uh, out of Elsevier Diabetes and Metabolism. When should screening be performed for gestational diabetes? All right, now put it in perspective, guys, right? This is over a decade ago, this is 2010. But in this publication, there's a little tiny section in the end where it says um, screening. Uh, in the third trimester, screening after 28 weeks. Okay, screening after 28 weeks. We're like, woohoo, And it's like two paragraphs, which basically says, quote, few studies have examined late screening beyond 28 or 30 gestational weeks. The small number of available studies reveal a relatively high prevalence of GDM during this period. End quote. So let's stop there. So if you read that, you're like, oh. Oh my goodness, there's a high prevalence? Well, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's green then. But based on what reference range? That's the question. Based on the reference range from another trimester? That's the catch, guys. We can extrapolate that reference range down, but is it valid to bring that up? Nobody knows. Anyway, they go through this data here that shows that basically in the next paragraph, the biggest positive predictive value seems to be uh, in babies that are, again, macrosomic, macrosomic. with uh, or without uh, polyhydramnios and those two things together obviously increases the positive predictive value all right and that's it that that's all they have and they basically leave in their little review over a decade ago that yeah let's just stick with 24 to 28 weeks that seems to be the best time to do it because otherwise we're just not really sure what to do isn't that interesting they say, don't do it earlier and later. Yeah, we don't know. Let me read you exactly. I read you just that, that one of the two paragraphs after screening for 28 GW gestational weeks. But here is, here's where they wrap this up in, in their summary. Ready? Quote, screening for gestational diabetes, regardless of the recommended screening policy, should be performed between 24 and 28 weeks of pregnancy. Now, here it is there is no reason to consider subsequent screening for gestational diabetes at a later stage, end quote. I know, I know, that's pretty strongly worded. I'm actually in that camp unless there's LGA slash macrosomia and polyhydramnios. And remember, when we're throwing these two terms, you know, kind of interchangeably, LGA and macrosomia, please don't send me an email or send me a message. Uh, I get it, LGA is a pediatric term slash neonatology term because that's actual birth weight against norms versus the OB term of macrosomia. Fine, I get it there, I've said it, so you don't have to send me a note. Uh, Just easier, right? LGA slash macrosomia, whatever. A big kid, right? More than 4,000 grams. Either that by itself, Or with poly, if it's with poly and it's over 4,000 gram, that surely looks like diabetes. And you can literally make, it's okay to make that as a clinical diagnosis. I believe you have diabetes here. You're kind of too late to screen. Baby sure looks like it. uh, And I'm going to implement the 4,500 gram rule based on these factors right now. uh, Because clinically you win. That, that that's a that you you win the the hand of cards. Uh, we're not going to gamble with that. We're going to bring that down to forty five hundred. That's perfectly reasonable. But nobody would review that on peer review and go, oh, that's unheard of." No, no, that's pretty reasonable, kid. is over four thousand grams. There's Polly, and she fa- she didn't have a, a normal. Um, pardon me. She didn't have a a testing because she wasn't around at twenty four or twenty eight weeks. You can make that diagnosis clinically. That's perfectly okay. That's expert opinion and interpretation of the data. All right. Now, it'd be more legit if you did a the, the, the formal screen, like a two-hour or a three-hour, but here's where it becomes problematic. Even though it's most likely to be abnormal in that case because of the fetal weight and polyadramnios, what would happen if it was negative? Do y'all see that? Care for what you look for because now you got a big kid, you've got Polly, but somehow they magically passed the three hour. You're like, Well, damn, um, okay, uh, does that change your management? You see how controversial this is, guys. This is the gray area that's in here. It's super nice to wrap it up in a bow. Oh, kids, 4,500 grams, the uh, uh, the maximum vertical pocket is 12. All right, so it's definitely elevated it's over eight. Uh, and you failed your three-hour third trimester screen. That's a diagnosis of GDM. I can get out with a primary section at 4,500 grams or more if you desire, and we've sealed it up with a bow. But what happens when big kid, a lot of fluid, you give them a three-hour because they missed it before, and it's normal? Well, that just jacks up everything, doesn't it? Because now possibly you just have a big kid, and you could possibly then wait to 5,000 grams, although that's pretty darn scary. Shoulder dystocia, guys, is something I try not to play with, even though most cases of shoulder dystocia, the college says, are not predictable. The relative risk does go up with fetal weight uh, and suspected GDM, of course. Okay. And oh my goodness, just horrific shoulder dystocia. I just hate them, hate them, hate them. And you should hate them too. respect the shoulder dystocia. But anyway, let's get back to this diabetes uh, and metabolism publication. When should screening be performed for gestational diabetes? That was um published in 2010 and i'll of course give this reference uh in our reference list uh it's a good review and notice in 2010 they're like hey don't even worry about there's no value to screen here subsequently after uh 29 weeks there's just very little data we don't have to do with that if it's a big kid it's a big kid uh and having another sugar test won't really change anything interesting back from 2010 All right, that moves us forward. Let's go now to a separate publication out of Obstetrics and Gynecology Science in 2020. So we've left 2010 because that's been some time ago, but now we're at September of 2020 in Obstetrics and Gynecology Science, right? The title of this publication is Delayed diagnosis of gestational diabetes mellitus and perinatal outcome in women with large for gestational age fetuses during the third trimester. Okay, so that's exactly what we're talking about that this is perfect. So when I saw this, I'm like, woohoo, what we here? this is gonna this is the light that we've been looking for. Uh, no, it's really not. Because it wasn't all that eye-opening or helpful. The, but let me explain. I'm, I'm not knocking it off. Any piece of information is helpful. Because even when it showed no real benefit, that's helpful to know. This was a retrospective cohort study done on singleton pregnant women whose babies looked macrosomic. Right, They're Like, hey, uh, looks so you passed your GDM screen earlier on and your kid is ginormous. Maybe something got missed. So let's redo it. They used the 100-gram glucose tolerance test after they had the diagnosis of suspected macrosomia and then said, let's see what's going on, okay? Well, among 169 pregnant women, 13% had a new diagnosis of GDM based on the 100-gram GTT, 13%. Remember the other publications that said, oh, it's like 25 or 30 different populations. Who knows? Here it was 13%. So still a pretty respectable number, 13%. The women in the GDM group did indeed have a higher hemoglobin A1C level, but it was still considered normal. Okay, It was about 5.8 compared to 5.3 um, compared to those who did not have uh, a new diagnosis of GDM. So still not the 65 That that would be considered diabetic, and that's why we've always said that hemoglobin A1C is not a great test as a standalone, because it takes a while to bump that, right? Takes eight to twelve weeks based on who you read. All right. They go on to say the rate of cesarean section was significantly higher in the GDM group than in the non-GDM diagnosis group. And it was big. It was seventy-three percent compared to forty-nine percent. And that's a huge difference. Okay, now here's what's a little weird. The indications for C-section were not really different between the two groups, except that there was a higher amount of elective or maternal request C-section, obviously in the GDM group, which makes sense because they likely had that informed consent that your kid's huge, you now have GDM, this kid can get stuck, and shoulder dystocia sucks. Well, of course, you're going to pick C-section on maternal request. But that makes it sound like, oh, it's just elective, I just want a C-section, I don't want to hurt the vagina. No, 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 That's this is potentially a, a yes, it's still elective, You, you, she elected to have it, it's on maternal request, yes. But that's different than just elective because you just don't want to labor. This is kind of a medical indicated, medically indicated a C-section. Does that make sense? So it gets a little gray there. But did y'all get that? It was... 73% had a C-section compared to 49 And those who had maternal request was 41% compared to 23% in those who did not have the new diagnosis of GDM. So all it did was increase the C-section rate. Okay, that's the take-home message. And what about perinatal morbidity? Well, here's what they say about that. Quote, there was no significant differences in the obstetrical and neonatal complications between the two groups. So in their conclusion... Among pregnant women with suspected LGA, 13% were newly diagnosed with GDM in late pregnancy. Nonetheless, there were no differences in the perinatal outcome between women with newly diagnosed GDM and those without GDM. And finally, they say, and they leave us with this statement, concerns over shoulder dystocia appear to increase cesarean delivery rates in the GDM group. Yeah, think, and, and I'm val- I'm okay with that. I'm like, hey, shoulder dystocia sucks. I'm totally okay with that. And again, that's how uh, it it may alter management because you're going to bring down your your estimated fetal weight to 4,500 in line with ACOG because of the risk of shoulder dystocia because of the anthropomorphic uh, fat accumulation on the shoulders of the kid, football shoulders, right? So this does matter in, in the one spot where screening for GDM can be done in that case it's not even screening you're now it's part of the diagnostic workup i know it's semantics but screening means everything is good hence screening diagnostic uh part of the diagnostic eval of macrosomia and polyhydramnios that's different i i I think that there's value there guys even though handful of studies and that's probably where your positive predictive value of a failed test comes in and those we've already discussed what do you do with a negative screen it can work against you like man you You failed that diabetes test with your kids like 18 pounds uh, and you've got like eight liters of fluid in there. Um, Wow. Uh, But it's not GDM. Is it not though? Really? I mean, really? (laughs) And so it it can kind of uh, muddy the waters. All right. That's why some people make that diagnosis clinically based on macrosomia and polyhydramnios. And you don't need you don't need no test to tell you different because that's clinically you've got that. Uh, And it's okay to overcall it for child protection. OK, rather than risk shoulder dystocia. So did I tell you controversial or what? But again, we've got so far, we've got two opinions here that, hey, it it doesn't really seem to change outcome, but we sure are going to increase some intervention, uh, very similar to screening in the first trimester or screening early, right? We can do it, but we're probably just going to increase intervention without really changing a lot of overall outcome. Guys, what do you think? I mean, is this helpful info? Because I get so wrapped up into this, I get like in my little uh, peer review, little tunnel, uh, and, and journals, you know, all over my my laptop. I've got Windows all over the place, all these you know, little uh, different tabs all open, and, and I forget—is this—is this even helpful? <laughs> I mean, I think it is. Again, this this morning, guys, this happened, and two different opinions from two different attendings who know their stuff. I mean, they're good. These are evidence-based academic and clinical practice providers who I respect equally. Uh, And they're both right. One said, don't. She missed her time. The other's like, well, you you might could do it. So yes, you might could do it, but specifically higher yield if they're macrosomic uh, with polyadramnios. Now, either one, you don't have to have both. Definitely, if you've got both, the diagnosis is likely set clinically. Uh, but either or is still suspicious for GDM, all right? So I told you, controversial. Now, I'm going to give you one final reference here, and then we're going to call it a day. Okay, here's another reference, uh, relatively recent, just three years ago. This is out of March 2021. Again, super respectable journal, BMC, Pregnancy and Childbirth. And the title of this article is Impact of Gestational Diabetes Mellitus Diagnosed During the Third Trimester on pregnancy outcomes. This is a case control study. Again, I read this. I'm like, all right, all right. I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about. Um, yeah, nothing, n- not nothing mind blowing here. Same stuff. Short of it is, it, let me read you the conclusion, then we'll dissect it a little bit. Is quote, although a diagnosis of GDM. Let me just stop there for a minute. Anytime you start a conclusion with although, <laughs> you know it, the poop's going to hit the fan, right? Because it's not like. Surprisingly, that's another way to start a conclusion. That's going to probably, you know, you're going to, well, ooh, that's a good value. But when you start with although, you've already just kind of pooped the message, didn't you? Well, although, that's exactly how they start. Quote, although a diagnosis of GDM during the third trimester does not improve pregnancy outcomes. Well, we could stop there. Well, what is the although then? What's after the comma? It says it increases the elective cesarean delivery rate. End quote. So guys, did y'all get that? Maternal, neonatal outcomes between both groups had no significant differences here. We just freaked ourselves out as healthcare providers and the patient that that kid going to get stuck in the vajuju. It's just going to get stuck. It ain't coming out and it's going to be horrible. And I'm the first one to say that because I'm not having a shoulder dystocia. I'm not doing it. I'm going to do vaginal bypass surgery, otherwise known as a C-section, and we're going to be out. We're going to exit this child... Through the roof. Not coming out the door. Because I don't want to have a shoulder gestosha. I don't know what has happened to me. This is weird. Did y'all get that? I'm like, it's it's in the evening on, I'm, well, hell, I'll just tell you. Because I know it sounds so bad. I'm doing this on Valentine's Day. Guys, d- don't worry. I've I've already taken care. I've given my daughter something. I've got my wife her little gift. We're going to have a nice dinner tonight. Um, So I'm not ignoring my... Valentine duty, whatever that is. But um, yeah, so uh, maybe it's Valentine's. Maybe I'm kind of off because it's Valentine's. And I really just don't like this holiday. I mean, I don't, want, I don't like people telling me I need to buy gifts. I want to take care of my family every day, not just on Valentine's. Ugh. I mean, I, I periodically come home with little treats, get my wife flowers, probably not as much as I should. Um, but I don't want a day to tell me to have to do it. And that's why maybe I'm kind of pissy. Anyway, this publication from BMC Pregnancy and Childbirth, so I can wrap this up and I can send the team home, uh, was from March 2021, no change in outcome with those with a new diagnosis of GDM in the third trimester. Podcast family, here's our last one. Then we're going to call it a wrap. Uh, This comes out of the European Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Reproductive Biology. This was from 2019. The title is Repeated Oral Glucose Tolerance Test in Women at Risk for Gestational Diabetes. Well, at risk in this population, in this study, was those who were obese. Same thing that we've talked about already at suspected Macrosomia. And sure enough, if you test in the third trimester in this publication from 2019, there, there's a pretty significant amount of women who were diagnosed with gdm in this publication it was 23 percent had a new diagnosis based on that second slash third trimester oral glucose tolerance test okay and in this one in this particular publication from uh 2019 they use the uh two-hour gtt all right. Uh, all to say their positive predictive value was higher in those with clinical risk factors. And yes, that can include just obesity, that can include uh, uh, macrosomia and abnormal fluid collection, AKA polyhydramnios. All right. So their conclusion was repeating an oral glucose tolerance test after initial negative screening results in additional GDM diagnoses in case of clinical signs, which we've already discussed. Especially in women with additional risk factors, uh, such as a history of GDM or higher index uh, glucose tolerance test values initially, repeating an oral glucose tolerance test could be considered. Notice, could be, not should be, could be. Why? Because all it did here, guys, and the same thing, all it did was increase diagnosis without really changing any perinatal outcome. podcast family have a wonderful valentine evening be safe and as always we're thankful for you we're glad you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of clinical pearls